We've heard the Beatitudes a number of times, and I want to begin by highlighting perhaps a feature that maybe hasn't stood out to us before. Six of the Beatitudes talk about a promise to be fulfilled in the future. We hear they will be comforted, they will inherit the land, they will be shown mercy. But two of the Beatitudes, the first and the last, talk about a reality that is already happening. It's not used in the future tense, it's used in the present. And that's, of course, with the poor in spirit. And the one I want to focus on today, which is those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For these two Beatitudes, it's said that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's interesting that persecution is tied to this realization of possessing the kingdom of heaven. We shouldn't be surprised that we find ourselves in a time of persecution and suffering. It's something that Jesus promised would occur. And of course, as the teacher goes, so too the disciple. There is so much more to see, however, than just this struggle in the midst of earth. There's a deeper spiritual reality at play. I think in the midst of a pandemic and with elections on Tuesday, it's really appropriate to talk about the apocalypse. I'm not, not that apocalypse, right? The meaning of the word apocalypse comes from the Greek, and it actually means unveiling. It's not necessarily talking about the end of the world. There's a genre of literature in scripture called apocalyptic genre, apocalyptic literature, that's specifically designed for times of persecution, uses highly symbolic language. But what is the point of apocalyptic literature, the book of Revelation especially, but also parts of Daniel and other books like Enoch? What are the purposes of these texts? The purpose of these apocalyptic texts is it's an exhortation to remain faithful and steadfast in the midst of incredible suffering. It's an unveiling apocalypse, an unveiling of these earthly realities where it looks like everything is in chaos and evil is winning and the veil is drawn back to see the supernatural spiritual reality that God is indeed in charge and his kingdom already is here on earth, that he is reigning. This is the great revelation that St. John has. And it's interesting, I want to pick out two elements from our first reading. The book of Revelation is very difficult to interpret because there's so many layers. There's more references in the book of Revelation to the rest of scripture than any other book. So it's important to understand those references in order to get the best picture of what's going on in the book of Revelation. One thing that stands out is that the angels that are sent to destroy the earth are not to touch the land or the sea or any tree until the righteous are marked on their foreheads that they belong to God. What's interesting is this is a reference to Ezekiel. Ezekiel has a vision just before the temples wiped out in 587 B.C., the Babylonians are coming to destroy Jerusalem, and the people, despite their sinfulness, 
think that God will still save them and not deliver them into judgment. So Ezekiel has this vision. The angel goes through and marks the righteous, those who never worshipped idols, on their forehead with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Tav. What's interesting about the letter Tav, and this is what church fathers point out, the Hebrew way to express that letter in writing is a cross. We would see that letter and we'd recognize immediately the cross. So not only was this mark used back in the time of Ezekiel for the angel to mark those who are to be spared when the Babylonians came and wiped out Jerusalem and the temple, but it's also St. John's present time because the temple is again about to be wiped out because of the sinfulness of the Jews who did not accept Christ. Those who did accept accept him were the 144,000. They're from the 12 tribes. Those are the Jewish people who converted and have entered into the church, who accepted the Messiah. They are marked for preservation. But those others who continued in their ways and did not accept the Messiah, they are not marked for safety. So if we know what the 144,000 are, what is the interpretation of the mark for us today? This mark is the cross, but we can recognize it. If you've ever been at a baptism, it's what defines the fact that we're baptized. At the beginning of the baptismal rite, the priest and the parents and the godparents mark on the child's forehead the sign of the cross. It's that sign of preservation. Now, what about this great multitude? Who do they represent? The great multitude in these white robes who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb are the Gentile nations. So there's Jews preserved and brought into the church and also the rest of the tribes, peoples, tongues, and nations. Those Gentiles are brought into the church also, and they are wearing white garments. What does it mean to have the garment washed in the blood of the Lamb? It simply means that in baptism, sin is wiped away. In confession, that soul, that garment is cleansed again, made white once again. And then the blood of Christ is partaken of in the sacrament of the Eucharist. It's those who are faithful, remain faithful to the end, staying true to God, washing away their sins through the sacraments of confession and receiving the Eucharist. That's the meaning of this faithful multitude. And the fact is, it's a great, huge number. It can't be counted. And the words that St. John uses, the words that this elder speaks to St. John, they are the ones who have survived the time of great distress. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They're like us. They're those who are in times of great distress, but they remained faithful. The reality that the book of Revelation is trying to convey in the midst of this time of persecution is God is in control. And also, there's a huge multitude of people who have already been saved who have washed their garments, who have persevered to the end. They serve as examples and other members of the community of God, the body of Christ. These are our brothers and sisters 
who have already accomplished by the power of God's grace being with him in heaven. This is an incredible witness. There's a book that Cardinal Ratzinger wrote called Call to Communion. And in that book, he wanted to make a point to distinguish what our view of the church should be. Oftentimes, our view of the church is a small group of people who are very active, the 80-20 rule, if you will, or it's the group of us who are gathered together around the Eucharist, or maybe when we think of the church, we think of the Pope and the bishops and the priests and the deacons. But what Benedict Sixteenth Emeritus, what he wanted to get across was the greatest reality of the church, the concept we should have first and foremost in our minds is not this small group or the bishops and the priests or us gathered here, but rather the saints from Abel to Abraham through Mary and the apostles all the way to Thomas More, Maximilian Kolbe, Edith Stein, and Pierre Giorgio Frassati. These are the true majority by which we orient our lives. The tumult of this world would have us believe that we are an insignificant number, that to remain faithful is foolishness. It's not what the majority are advocating. When in reality, with the communion of saints, we have an incredible multitude gathered around us, praying for us, interceding for us, desiring us to join them. This is this unveiling that pulls away this blinder that prevents us from seeing the true spiritual reality. May we not be so caught up in the world so that we don't see the true greatness of what's happening. The kingdom of God is growing and the huge majority of the church is already in heaven praying and interceding for us. We have a stunning line in terms of our role in the church, what the saints have done. What, what do the saints' merits do for us? Why do we intercede with the saints? Why do we ask for their help? The definitive line that we have from Scripture that reminds us of the power of intercession and of merit is Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings for you and so complete in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. This is what St. Paul says. I rejoice in my sufferings for you and complete in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. What could possibly be lacking in the most perfect sacrifice ever offered? What's lacking is our participation. St. Paul knew that there was something meaningful to suffering once Christ died on the cross, once we were brought into his body through baptism, that somehow in a mysterious way, we become collaborators where our suffering becomes efficacious. All of the saints who have gone before us, this great multitude, 
that remain faithful in the midst of persecution, those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, that their merits and good deeds, their sufferings and what they've suffered through persecution, that that benefits us in some mysterious way. St. Paul tells us so. So I'll end with more of an image, a vision, if you will. When we think about the reality of the church, all the things in the world that are oppressing us, all the stresses that we have, all the difficulties going on in our world right now, imagine the great veil, the very ceiling of this church opening up in our entire vision being filled with countless individuals who have already conquered in Jesus Christ. They've already been found worthy to wear these white garments and we venerate them already in heaven and that they are praying and interceding for us, desiring us to come where they've already gone before us. They draw us on. They're rooting for us. Imagine the great celebration when they can say, you who lived in such trying times, what an incredible grace that you're here. I'm amazed that you were steadfast. It's incredible. And we'll be able to see which saints interceded for us and gave us strength in the time of persecution so that we would remain faithful. I think the perfect quote to sum up this vision is from St. Paul in his letter to the Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. May we look to the saints as our intercessors, and may we please God be with them forever and eternity.